It was Iraq. It was 2003. And U.S. military leaders were facing a challenge unlike any they had previously encountered. Having captured Baghdad in a matter of weeks, they now needed to secure a populous urban area. And deep in the heart of that capital city of 5.6 million residents lay a particular security quandary. Leaders had to find a way to fortify the Green Zone, a four-square-mile district along the Tigris River in central Baghdad that would host government officials, private contractors, and diplomats, among others. As time passed, a new directive made the security task even more difficult. Hoping to be less intrusive on the local population, forces were instructed to begin opening public streets within the Green Zone. That effort raised many new questions for military leaders. How could they ensure protection of critical assets while inside a functioning urban environment located deep within hostile territory? How much of a protective barrier would they need to maintain around various facilities to keep them safe from attacks? How would they operate checkpoints or deter suspicious vehicles? And as leaders tackled those questions, they turned to the U.S. Army Engineer Research and Development Center. Arctic engineers rapidly conducted research that provided answers, informed proper tactics, and ensured safe operations within the Green Zone. Supplementing this guidance, Arctic also developed numerous technologies to protect warfighters and civilians from rockets, mortars, car bombs, and other explosions. Those structures would be deployed to fortify vulnerabilities not only in the Green Zone, but throughout the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. In the coming days, the nation will remember the 20th anniversary of the September 11th, 2001 terrorist attacks. It is also a time to reflect on how the world has changed as a result of those attacks and the ensuing war on terror. Throughout the past 20 years, Burdick has played a vital role in providing protective solutions for both the homeland and the warfighter serving overseas. As our soldiers face unfamiliar threats posed by insurgent forces, Burdick has provided decision support tools, informed new tactics, and developed technologies that solve many of the most vexing force protection challenges. Burdick's expertise includes testing, as well as modeling and simulation capabilities in the areas of nuclear and conventional weapons and improvised explosive devices. That expertise has been applied in developing buildings, bridges, protective structures, and bunkers that can withstand required blast loads or defeat certain weapons. Our expertise has also been applied to define the protection level of existing structures. In doing so, Erdic has saved the lives of countless warfighters and civilians and has enabled mission success. I'm Megan Holland, and with Chris Kiefer, this is The Power of Erdic. Our guests today are Pam Kinnerbrew and Nick Boone, Senior Scientific Technical Managers from Erdic's Geotechnical and Structures Laboratory. Pam is Erdic's Lead Technical Director for Military Engineering, Force Protection, and Weapons Effects. Nick is Technical Director for Force Projection and Maneuver Support. We will talk with Pam and Nick about how Erdic is protecting the Force in a post-9-11 world. Nick, Pam, thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here. Glad to be here. We're focused today on the multitude of force protection capabilities that Erdic has delivered since the September 11th terrorist attacks and the ensuing war on terror. But as we approach the 20th anniversary of that event, I want to start by talking about some of your memories from that time. Pam, I knew you were actually working at Erdic on that day when the attack happened. What do you remember about it? I remember getting up that morning and and starting to hear about the attacks on the news and thinking, we need to hurry up and get to work and, and see what's going on. 
when we got there, it's like everybody kind of started to congregate in the conference room and, and watching the news, seeing the attack against the, the towers and then the ensuing fall of the towers was just a really emotional kind of thing, something that, that nobody had ever really seen before. Watching that, as a as an Arctic researcher, as a researcher who's been involved in force protection and whatnot, I mean, you're watching that, I guess, kind of different than the general public. And what is going through your mind? So as we work that, you know, it, historically, every time there had been some kind of a terrorist attack, a bombing or something like that against the various buildings, there's always a flurry of activity after that. How do you do an assessment of what happened? How do you make sure that these kinds of things don't happen again? And so we basically were all as much as you're looking at that and just the issues that you see from a people perspective and everything, there was still the back of your mind going, how are we going to respond to this? What, what is Erdic going to be called to do? What are we specifically going to be called to do? And it turned out that there was a lot that followed. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to be talking about that a lot as we go. Nick, you were in college when it happened. Is that right? Correct. What do you remember about that day? Yeah, so that morning um, I had a late class, so I uh, woke up, saw the news reports, and watched as much as I could before going to, I think it was an engineering econ class or something like that, where, you know, just the morale and feeling in the room was totally different. Um, at the time, I had no idea that I would ever be working for the Army, for the Corps. Um, I was a couple of years away from graduation at that point, but definitely imprinted kind of a new uh, crisis in your mind. I did have family in the military and had a lot of friends in the military, uh, but at that point in time could never project that I'd be doing what I would in the future. So fast and forward, you know, a couple of years when you started Erdic, what were those days like, you know, when you're starting and Erdic is ramping up and meeting this new challenge? And I mean, it had to be a, a pretty hectic time for a new hire. Yeah. <laughs> I reported to a building that was empty. My first day at work, there was one person in the entire building. Everyone else was Elsewhere across the country, uh, working on these problems, working on protection issues. Uh, I think, in fact, the first week or two that I was there, it was myself and the admin. Uh, so a lot of a lot of time, not really knowing what I was going to be doing in the future. Uh, but it, it, with no doubt, when everyone came back from their field exercises, the the tempo was up, and uh, it hadn't really sank in yet entirely as to what I was getting into. But as the years unfolded, we were central to protecting civilians and warfighters elsewhere. Yeah, I guess there wasn't much of a, of a honeymoon period, of a warming up period. I mean, you were pretty much thrown into the fire right away. Yeah, we, we were thrust into the middle of it. The connectivity to the warfighter issues was real time. It was hot and high tempo for a lot of people during those first few months and even years to come. So I think a key takeaway from this for me is at a time where so many people felt helpless, y'all had the ability to actually help. Uh, that's true. I mean, it was one of those things where we had some ongoing research programs that were supposed to deal with base camp survivability. Granted, when they first started, a lot of the uh, focus was assessment and being able to have decision support tools that would let the warfighter decide what do we need to do for protection. And it rapidly morphed into how to go out and physically put the protective solutions into these base camps so that, that they would be protected from any of the different threats that were that they were facing. So on that topic, the U.S. 
of course, found itself in conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq shortly after the September 11th attacks. Pam, what was different about the force protection challenges the warfighter was encountering over there? So up until this point, most of the research that we had been doing and the focus for protection with the Army had been in large-scale conflict, large force-against-force battle. And all of a sudden, we found ourselves in base camps, in places where the attacks were going to be mortars and rockets and suicide bombers and IEDs, as opposed to, you know, a tank-against-tank battle. And so that was really not the kinds of threats we designed any protection for. But we were able to leverage a lot of the protection that we had done for terrorist threat attacks into this type of scenario. But there were an awful lot of unknowns that we had to address. I want to talk on that very point. You mentioned uh, the protections from terrorist attacks in the past. And a lot of people listening may not realize the role that Erdic played actually on that day, on September 11th. Can you talk about that and, and even just kind of some of that, that history leading up to it? So we've worked with multiple government agencies across the board, the Department of State, uh, the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, and others to develop mechanisms and technologies that could be put into the construction of buildings to protect against different types of terrorist threats. One of the things that we were able to, to do in a collaborative effort was to design and test the retrofits that were going into the Pentagon. And so we've had a number of people come to us and say, we are so thankful for the work that you were able to do and the retrofits in the Pentagon, because as that attack happened, it, with the retrofitted sections, they had time to get out of the building. There was very little time for that kind of effort in areas that were not retrofitted. Yeah. So for, again, for people who aren't familiar with the, the plane actually had flown into a part of the building that had just been retrofitted with some of this Erdic technology. And it stood for, I've heard different time amounts, an extra 35 minutes or something compared to other parts, right? So ultimately, it was one of those things where it was right at the junction of a section of the Pentagon that had been retrofitted and a section that had not. And so you wound up with a stark contrast between the stability of the structure itself, where the retrofits were in place, and the other side that essentially almost collapsed immediately. Hmm. And you just think of how many lives were saved because of that, which is just kind of gives you chills when you think about it. Right. Building off of that, so we talk about, again, going back to right after 9-11, and, and you mentioned all the new force protection challenges that, that came into play from this new threat. Talk about how, kind of why Erdic and how well positioned Erdic was to help answer some of these questions. So like I said, we had the work that was already in our program to address some of these challenges, but ultimately you wind up with new rockets, new mortars that we didn't have weapons effects against. But the benefit we had is that we've done all of this type of thing before. So we had processes, procedures for testing. We knew what we needed to do. Uh, we understood the constraints that the warfighters were facing. And a lot of that was due to the fact that there was almost 24-7 kind of communication back and forth with the warfighters 
through the the reach back capability that Erdic was providing. So I, I have a slightly different perspective on that. You know, here I'm coming straight out of school, not formally being trained in any of this type of weapons effects testing or protective structures. But it was easy to acclimate myself to it because I had mentors and, you know, national experts that I could lean on to learn from. But facing a different threat, facing an asymmetric threat, there weren't answers for this. So it was it was kind of good that we didn't have a lot of background in this space because it gave you freedom to become creative, think outside the box, but yet still learn from the decades prior of subject matter experts working in this space. It kind of makes me think we talked with Gabe Monroe a little bit on, on our last episode about how the modeling and simulation work that he's doing now for unmanned ground vehicle builds on the stuff that goes all the way back to World War II. It gets to one of the powerful things about Erdic is just you can really stand on doing new, solving new challenges, doing so standing on the shoulders of, of so much expertise that has come before. Exactly. Yeah, just continuing the body of knowledge, continuing to extend solutions in a problem space based on what those that have done before you. But it, it, was, it was an interesting time. A lot of good stories gathered, a lot of good stories told from prior conflicts, but definitely a team collaborative effort. And when, when people hear force protection, you know, warfighter support, I'm not sure that they're going to immediately think of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, but this is something that we do here at Erdic. Well, and that's one of the things that I, I think you're right. I think they would not associate the Corps of Engineers as doing this work. But across the board, if you look at survivability and protective structures, it's a function that we provide for all the services. There's really not a lot of research, especially in the applied and and demonstration kinds of areas where the other services do this. They rely on us to do the hard science, the materials work, the protection concepts. And then a lot of times they work with us as we proceed forward to develop concepts that are very specific, say, to the Air Force or to the Navy. We, we often say protection from the foxhole to the fixed facility. Exactly. You know, that entire spectrum of warfighter on the combat field to protecting the homeland. Tell us, I know there's a, a gamut of things that Erdic was involved with in force protection in those days. Tell us about some of the, the solutions that Erdic was developing. So as Pam mentioned, you know, one of the big challenges as we move into this theater is essentially creating cities in what had never been an occupied space before. So those inevitably become targets, large targets towards an asymmetric threat. You know, so how do you protect an entire city, um, you know, multiple city blocks worth of space efficiently, effectively, and cost effective? So problems associated with material availability in theater, problems associated with construction timelines. Uh, so we structured our research programs around identifying how to optimize solutions. Large overhead covers were designed, tested, uh, validated, shared with international partners, and then constructed in large, over large gathering areas. Criteria for entry control points. You know, it was almost as if as soon as we could create a solution, it was being trialed at the training centers at Fort Polk, Louisiana, uh, documented in best practice handbooks, and then propagated across the force to include our international allies, NATO partners included. So we, it, it was research to results on a 24-hour cycle, really. And a lot of the, as far as the, to say, technology solutions, I mean, a lot, I guess it was a suite of, of things. You mentioned overhead cover, you know, modular protective systems, guard towers. I mean, the idea for, for all of them is just 
different protective structures that can be rapidly constructed, limited manpower, limited materials was kind of the, the thrust of all of them, right? Yeah. I mean, each technology was, I think, tailored to the constraints for the country or conflict that mm-hmm. you were in. In Iraq, uh, there was a large construction contract construction force available to implement solutions. So large area overhead cover could be accomplished with standard construction practices. In Afghanistan, where logistics were much more difficult, you didn't have as much contractor support, we needed to design pre-kitted solutions that a non-technical workforce, you know, soldier power could essentially put together. So that's where a lot of the kitted solutions for modular protective systems were more applied as mountaintops in Afghanistan where you don't have heavy construction equipment access. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was kind of a continual cycle of evaluating what the logistical and manpower constraints were in each scenario and then recommending solutions that fit their needs. So you mentioned Fort Polk. We have testing grounds out there where you actually go and um, set off explosions to test this technology and make sure it's going to keep soldiers safe. I wonder, the first time I ever, I have been out there. I've been out there a couple of times. And the first time I was out there, I was so excited. If I had known that you could do that for a career, I might have gone a different career path. I remember getting really excited about it. But can you talk a little bit about how you make sure that these technologies are ready to be deployed? Sure. Yeah. So Fort Polk facility that we leverage very heavily, not the only place though that we use. Mm -hmm. We travel internationally. We worked with our British allies. We uh, conducted experiments on the other side of the ocean, do a lot of work at Florida. But the key is understanding how to decouple the weapons effects, evaluate their um, response against the structures in different manners, um, and in most cases, use the actual threat weapons. You know, I think one of the challenges that we faced in this theater is some of the threat weapons that were being used, we didn't have a lot of information on. So we were able to work with other government agencies to obtain access to the right threat weapons and validate uh, our you know, calculations, all of our decoupled experiments that we do here in the laboratory to give a 100% answer. And so the, the good news in that is as these recommendations are going forward regularly, there's really no question about their performance because we have the example experiments to show you know, the soldiers that are having to implement them. Right. When I was there, y'all actually shot a rocket-propelled grenade into the modular protective system, which is a, a wall that is a barrier, and it stood. And it, I was, you know, I think there were a lot of VIPs out there that day that were amazed with what y'all could do with that. Yeah, I think communicating your results is probably one of the key lessons learned is having the right stakeholders present so that they can see the results firsthand really does make a difference in, you know, them adopting it and being willing to implement it. And getting it into the hands of the warfighter, which is the goal. So one of the things you look at the MPS and and it's designed to be a structure that all the pieces and parts can be carried by two people. Mm -hmm. You put it together without any heavy equipment. And so people compare that immediately to a HESCO that basically is filled with with soil or rock or a lot of heavy material. And, And so it is a significant job sometimes to convince somebody that what you've come up with that is lightweight, easily deployable, 
quick to put up and take down is going to provide that same level of protection that you would get from a HESCO. Yeah. But it goes back to what Nick was saying in, in Afghanistan and, and even in Iraq, as you wanted to change perimeters and and do various things like that, it's difficult if you've got massive amounts of material that you've got to move from point A to point B. The MPS was reusable and easy to put up, easy to, to move to a different location. And so that's why that solution became a really good set of building blocks to move into not just the wall system, but rapid overhead cover scenario, mortar pits, guard towers, and things along those lines. And then I guess the other big piece of this, in addition to all the protective structures and covers, is in a lot of ways you all were writing the book on force protection, literally writing the book. Can you talk about that? I guess the J-5 Joint Forward Operating Base Handbook, what it is, how important it is, and in the role that Erdic had in putting that together. As I mentioned before, I think as soon as we were producing these tidbits of knowledge, they were being captured uh, in quick look reports, you know, we would typically push out quick look reports to a large distribution list nightly for kind of hasty implementation guidance. But then to document them in a, in a more enduring location, I think the joint staff actually funded the first version of the JFOB handbook because the joint force realized deficiencies in our best practices, manuals. We didn't even have doctrine for base camps during this time. Um, So a lot of those uh, lessons learned were being captured and updated on an annual cycle, typically. I think that handbook was essentially renewed every year. So, you know, our experiments, our demonstrations at Fort Polk are being injected directly into the pages of what will soon or what has become, you know, Army doctrine, basically. You'll, you'll see a lot of parallels where the Army has adopted those best practices as recommended doctrine. Yeah, I, I think our knowledge has informed a lot of the Army's path forward if we continue to think about building base camps, protecting base camps of different sizes. You know, we talk about the large base camps in Iraq, but even Afghanistan, they were small combat outposts. So the Different solutions tailored for each extreme condition uh, were addressed in that handbook. And and I still talk to soldiers today who comment how they walked around with them in their pockets. And, you know, it was kind of their reference manual for understanding their protection posture. That's cool. And when did you understand the impact that you were having? Um, What what kind of feedback were you getting from more fighters in the field about the effectiveness of these solutions? So basically, when we started, like Nick said, We're giving them updates pretty much every two or three days, sometimes nightly, so that they would understand the results of the testing and could move forward with plans. And these are all, just to stop people understanding this all through, you mentioned the Reachback Center. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, essentially that's allowing you all, you all are communicating directly with people in the field. They're sending questions to you all you're trying to solve. You're sending back the solutions. and That's right. I mean, there were even times, you know, when something urgent would come up, if, if they would get a notification of a potential threat, and, and we could get calls in the middle of the night yeah. and, and basically say, we need to do something about this right now. What is, what is the best thing for us to go do, given the threat that we think we're facing? So we go back and would sometimes even get the phone calls in the middle of the night where people are asking us, you know, we have a, an imminent threat. We need to know what we need to go and do about this. And we would be providing all of that information. The next time you, you hear these people and you talk to them, they say, an attack happened. And, and the, the solutions that you've given us 
were the kinds of things that saved lives. I can remember that we were in the middle of, of some meetings with our UK allies, and we got notification that one of the, the defects, the dining facilities, had gotten a mortar strike against it. And, and we were all sitting there really worried and concerned about, you know, how did it respond? What, what damage was done? And they're like, no, y'all don't understand. This was like 10 minutes. Everybody's kind of wondering about what's going on. Was that a mortar strike? And we just kept on eating. And so we are so thankful that what you had done was in place and and how many people's lives have been saved. And that facility had an overhead cover. Yes, that had an overhead cover that had been installed through that overhead coverage program. You know, and it, it there were formal recognitions. There were letters from General Petraeus, you know, Joint Staff, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, all those kinds of things kind of acknowledging our role in this larger protection. But it was the the smaller messages from the soldiers, you know, they have an impossible question. You're solving that nightly. And, you know, you may get a thing. She may not get to hear anything back, but no news is good news because, yeah, you know, yeah. you're kind of helping them deflect these challenges um, day to day. And so there, there was, we run into soldiers, they're colonels and such now, that after a few conversations, you find out they were the ones on the other end of the line um, and your solutions were helping them. Yeah. I usually like to ask about the impact when we do these podcasts, but here it's very obvious you're helping soldiers and deployed civilians get home safe. Right. Yeah. And, it, you know, in reflection, there's probably countless events that we don't know about mm -hmm. because the protective structures did what they were supposed to do. It's, you know, no national notable event is what we were striving for. And so an attack basically had no impact whatsoever. So there never makes the news. You never hear anything about it. So there, there's a lot of success stories out there that we'll never know about. We've talked a little bit around it so far is the operational tempo, but I kind of just want to hit on that more and what that was like, as you said, I mean, these were solutions. This isn't a typical environment where, hey, you know, give us, you know, start looking into a problem that we're anticipating down the line. These solutions were needed immediately. What were those days like in terms of operational tempo? A lot of long hours, a lot of work through weekends, but, you know, you, f you felt indebted to do that because they were sacrificing downrange as well. Also, with time zone shifts, when we're supposed to be going to bed, they're waking up. And so that's when their communications start. So a lot of Blackberries dinging at night and you just you can't help but pick it up and respond. I think the ability for us to work as a team and, you know, allow people to flex and go do personal things when they need to. But the rest of the teams, there ready to pick it up. It kept that operational tempo moving. And so uh, with the support of the Reachback Center and their ability to kind of keep communications flowing. I think we were able to get answers out there as, as soon as possible. There was never a, a lack of need. There, there, there are stories of people sleeping on the ranges and, you know, spending a lot of time out west at test facilities. Uh, fun times, good, good messages, good stories with, you know, an excellent team of technicians, skilled craftsmen, um, engineers and scientists working around the clock to just come up with the best answer that we could. That was the big thing. It's, it, you know, it kind of goes back to we sit there and, and look at, at that op tempo. And, and Nick mentioned when he was first hired on and, and he was at the office kind of 
by himself because everybody was gone. And and it wound up being a conversation I remember with him where he's like, I feel like I need some stuff to do. It's like, just sit tight in in a very short period of time. You're not going to feel like this at all. Do all your administrative paperwork because it's getting ready to get rough, right? So Nick basically went from being in the office with not a whole lot to do while everybody else was, was TDY. And then as everyone got back from Fort Bliss, we were able to, to pick him up and get him involved in, in all of that testing. And it was a definite huge change. Um, I want to agree with him as far as like, I think the teamwork that went into making all of those solutions possible was really important because this was high tempo work over an extended period of time. And, and so everybody working together as a team did let you kind of have an ability to take care of the things in your personal life and, and still, I think, accomplish some pretty amazing things as far as like getting solutions out quickly. I've heard stories of people, you know, having to live in their cars and, and eat <laughs> late, late night fast food meals and all that. I mean, what is inspiring you all to be doing that work and and putting in that kind of a time? I felt if we weren't doing our job at the best pace that we could, people's lives were at risk. I mean, how how can you sleep easy at night knowing that somebody's waiting on this answer? Pam was my supervisor at the time, and I remember at one point her informing me what my government cell phone bill was because you're just constantly connected with this both back in Vicksburg, out west, elsewhere in the country. And uh, I was so embarrassed, but it was part of the job. And she reassured me, hey, that, you know, we provide these tools to you to stay connected and do your job. So, you know, I think the workforce as a whole was learning a new op tempo, learning how to adjust to it. Um, you know, a lot of us were going through graduate school at the same time and trying to work coursework on the weekends. And so that I think the ability to challenge these um, employees across Erdic was was a good time to grow yourself, a good time to challenge yourself from multiple different perspectives. And not many people outside of the medical profession, of course, get to go to work every day and know what they're doing is actually saving lives. And that, that's what was happening here. Right. Building on that too, as we come up on the 20th anniversary of, of that day of September 11th, I mean, how much in those days is just the, the weight, the, the memories of those who lost their lives on that day, the soldiers who were there overseas to protect them. I mean, how much are you all thinking about that? How much is that kind of driving this work? Well, I think across the board, one of the things that has made us pretty successful in the solutions and understanding the problem for the warfighter is the fact that we actually get to know them. And, and there is that they talk about the warfighter touch point. But it's really more than that. It's developing the relationships with these people. And so there were times when people that you knew made that sacrifice. And you can't help but think about that as you look back, knowing that, well, at least all of the work that we were doing was was helping to save some people, but but you don't save everybody. And so it's it's a time of reflection and you know, remembering the good things about those those folks that, that were close to you. It's and personal. It is. It's yeah. personal. And I, I think it motivates you to try to get ahead of the problems. You know, the, we were working operational issues of the day, you know, challenges that couldn't be solved that night. 
but you begin to see trends and that that's really effective in shaping our research program because we want to jump ahead and get ahead of the threat. And so we, I think we were successful in doing that, you know, kind of adapting from Iraq to Afghanistan, recognizing the challenges there. And so we would structure our research programs to anticipate problems before they really manifested. And I think that's one of the things that drove us to in the new modernization programs, because as there was a shift to to looking to the Pacific and other threats, I think we were one of the first people to begin to adapt our our portfolios, mainly because we had just been through all of this. We understood if you aren't really looking forward, then you're going to be caught in that scenario where the problem is right here, right now, and you don't have a solution for it. That's not a good place to be. And on that very point, I mean, how much does the research, does the lessons learned over the past 20 years kind of position Erdic to solving the new challenges and tomorrow's challenges? How much are y'all building on that right now? A great bit. You know, the, there were small instances of protection challenges in urban environments while we were in Iraq. And we would, you know, solve those immediate problems, but there were still lingering challenges that we knew we didn't solve. And so as the Army talked about potentially operating in megacities and dense urban, we reflect on those challenges and begin to anticipate how we should adjust our programmatics. So, you know, I think we're constantly trying to understand the future operating environment where we may be going, reflecting on lessons learned from prior conflicts, and uh, again, you know, just adapting those fundamental core competencies of blast and weapons effects into a new problem space. So you know, the new workforce that's sitting in our positions of the past is working through those same challenges right now. Anticipate the future, work on solutions, discover, develop, deliver. Well, thank y'all. Thank y'all for this discussion. Thanks to just for all the efforts that you all have done and, and, and you, the Arctic team. I mean, kind of like Megan said before, it, it's so easy to see the impact. And, and I know just a lot of people in general, you know, do a job and you don't really see the impact it's having. I mean, the impact here is so clear in the, in the amount of lives that you will have saved over the last 20 years of war fighters and civilians. And so thanks for, for all those efforts and, and again for your time today. Happy to help. Yep. Glad to be here. During the war on terror, our armed forces and allies needed new solutions to protect them from changing threats. Erdic answered that call. Erdic has written many of the standards that define today's force protection guidelines. It has delivered new decision support tools to provide clarity in unfamiliar scenarios and it has developed rapidly deployable protective structures that can be constructed with limited manpower and materials. Billions of dollars have been invested in deploying these solutions around the world. But the true impact of these efforts lies in the countless lives saved from enemy attacks through the years. The Power of Arctic Podcast is a production of the U.S. Army Engineer Research and Development Center. Follow Arctic on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest information. You can listen to the Power of Arctic Podcast in all major podcast players. Visit powerofarcticpodcast.org for more resources. You can also contact us at powerofarcticpodcast at usace.army.mil. Also, be sure to visit Arctic's LinkedIn page for more content on how Arctic's research played a vital role in saving lives at the Pentagon on September 11th and during the years following in support of America's warfighters overseas. You'll find videos, articles, historical snippets, and a LinkedIn Live conversation. That's all we have time for today, but we'll see you next time.